1: And Mike, for more on the Murdoch murder trial, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation and former prosecutor, Colleen Stimson joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. Part of Alec Murdoch's defense is that he was with his mother who suffers from dementia at the time of the murders. But we just saw in Jonathan Sarri's reporting that video that his son Paul had recorded that um, had voices in the background and three witnesses stated in court that they heard Alec Murdoch in the background. Take a listen.
0: The three voices on that video are the voices of Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alec Murdoch. How sure are you? I'm 100% sure. What voices did you hear? Paul's, Miss Maggie, Miss Mr. Alec. And how sure are you now? Positive. 100%? That's correct. Whose voices did you recognize
2: on that video? Uh, Paul Murdoch, Maggie Murdoch, and Alex Murdoch. And how sure are you? 100 percent.
1: Cully, with all the information that jurors are hearing, how impactful are those three witnesses?
0: I think it's very impactful. I think the alibi defense is starting to unravel. And remember, another piece of evidence that was adduced at trial this week was the caregiver for Alex's mother. And Alex said to the police after he called 9-1 and reported the murder that he had fallen asleep after dinner about 8.15, on the couch, and he goes over to his mom's house for a while, comes back and finds the bodies. The, unfortunately, the caregiver for the mother said he was only there for about 20 minutes, even though he was trying to coerce or convince her that he was there for 40 minutes. This is all very damning, and most cases are circumstantial evidence cases, and the law makes no distinction between direct or circumstantial evidence, so this alibi defense is starting to fall apart.
1: Well, the prosecution insists that Murdoch killed his wife and son due to the financial crisis he was facing, and the judge is allowing testimony on that. But it's complicated. How much of a challenge is it for the prosecution to make a direct line from the financial aspect of this to the murder um, without the defense being able to effectively cast some doubt in the minds of at least one juror?
0: Well, I mean, I was a defense attorney and all you need is one. Uh, And so this cumulative impact of all this cross-examination may amount to reasonable doubt for one juror. The problem is that, uh, you know, you don't have to prove motive in murder cases. But the jury is always going to be sitting there wondering, well, why the heck did he actually do this? Why would you kill your lovely wife and young son? Uh, But the cumulative amount of circumstantial evidence, forensic evidence like the blood spatter on his T-shirt, all this videotape, Stuff that ha- puts him there within five minutes of the murder, the jurors are not going to ignore that. So even if they can't figure out the motive uh, and whether the financial uh, imperil that he was in drove him to do the nutty, horrible thing of killing his wife and son, may be irrelevant. Uh, and they may just convict him on the forensic evidence alone.
1: I only have a few seconds left, but do you think Alec Murdoch is going to testify? <laughs>
0: Well, it's his right not to testify. His defense attorney said he had an alibi. He's the only one that can tell the jurors if he has an alibi. So this is the real Hobson's choice that the defense have. So that's, that's the $100,000 question. He's going to have to take the stand if he wants to assert a strong alibi defense.
1: Interesting. Okay. Coley Simpson, thank you so much for your time today. Have a good one.
0: Thanks.
3: Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. In this episode and the next, I'm going to unpack SLED's investigation, including their press release, the police crime report, and SLED's interrogation of Alec Murdoch on August the 11th, and what it revealed. And I'll get into Murdoch's behaviour, his clothes, the phone data and car data. Now I can tell you, that's a lot to pack into these next few episodes, and so I'm going to dive in straight away. No messing around. I know you like me to get straight into it, so let me just say that the usual trigger warning applies. Listener discretion is advised. Now just before I do dive in, I did pose a question right at the end of the last episode about whether Murdoch was, as Shelley Smith described, a kind person or a highly manipulative coercive controller. You probably by now have an opinion about that. I purposefully posed that question because I wanted you to understand what Shelley saw and realise that when you're manipulated and conned about who someone is, it says much more about the manipulator than it does the victim. The art of manipulation and the skill of the coercive controller is measured by their ability to hide the manipulation the truly masterful and accomplished coercive controller, will give you the impression that they're a great guy who's actually just trying to help you and care for you and wants what's best for you, which is why Shelley said he was a nice guy. She didn't get the context, and now that's not a criticism of Shelley, but her gut instinct was tweaking, and that's why she spoke to her brother. Now, the important thing to remember is that there will be a power imbalance, and sometimes it's invisible, But let's not forget that Murdoch is a man who really understands people. He also does his research. He knows what matters to someone when it's in his interest to do so. And he understands vulnerability. And he exploits it in every way to benefit himself. And that's exactly how a coercive controller operates. A master manipulator, as I call them. He was signalling to her that he can make good things happen. Or equally, he can make bad things happen for her. He has the power over her, and he knows it. That's how the good old boy's patriarchy works. And of course, powerful men seek out powerful friends. And they're all in it together, scratching each other's backs and benefiting from others. That's what makes it so insidious and odious. And once you've been hoodwinked and caught in the spider's web of the coercive controller, it's really hard to identify those behaviours which are often invisible to you and to others. Now, 52% of victims don't even see it as abuse. And then when they do, it's really hard to escape and exit the relationship safely. You see, for the coercive controller, it's all about meeting their needs. And they manipulate you to ensure that their needs are met and that they stay in control. Also, one last point, and it relates to time. Did you notice that Murdoch avoided being nailed down on time and specifics? They're both red flags. Now in this episode and the coming episodes, you'll understand in greater detail how and why this was always a case about behaviour and time. The timeline, as I keep saying, is of paramount importance, the micro and the macro, and it's about all the little pieces, and when you identify them and when you fit them together, you look at which direction they're pointing in, and in this case, they were pointing in one direction and one direction only. Now, talking of behaviour and the timeline, I want to highlight that it was nine days after Maggie and Paul's murders that SLED released their first statement about the murders to the media on June the 16th. Nine days is a hell of a long time to not get information out to the public and to not appeal for information or for help. I'm going to share with you several quotes from the press release for you to assess and analyse for yourself. Now, in the press release, they confirmed that Murdoch called 911 and shortly after local police arrived at Moselle Road at 11.47pm. SLED agents responded to the scene at 12.07am on June the 8th. SLED also said, and I'm going to directly quote from the press release here, Crime scene personnel worked throughout the morning of June the 8th to collect evidence and submitted it to SLED's forensic lab which immediately began processing and testing the evidence. Sled also stated that no arrests had been made and no suspects have been publicly named, but the reporters were told that there was no danger to the public at this time. That's really interesting. Let's think about that statement for a moment. Nine days on, they said no arrests and no suspects, but there was no risk, i.e. nothing to see here. Firstly, the time delay in making this statement to the media and public is puzzling. Normally when law enforcement say it's an isolated incident and we're not looking for anyone else, or no one else is at risk, the subtext is that it's domestic violence related. Now I've talked about that before, but here we see it in this case. But is that what they meant here? Because it's evident to me that Murdoch wasn't treated as a suspect at the scene or thereafter – despite the fact that this was later argued at the trial by his defence team. In fact, as I pointed out to you, I saw him wandering around the crime scene and the officers just let him go straight after they interviewed him. I didn't hear or see them immediately secure Murdoch or request his clothing or ask for his phone that night or restrict him in any way. Also, they said that they processed the crime scene through the night... But they couldn't have possibly finished the job, given how vast the area was, including the actual house. Now, throw in the fact that it was dark, and on the police body-worn camera footage, you could see that they struggled to see the casings and things on the ground. So how could they have processed the hunting lodge and the surrounding area? That statement is confounding. And how can they know that the public is not at risk? They didn't find the weapons, and people were fearful... They didn't know the motive at this stage, remember? Or if they suspected Murdoch after his two interviews at this stage, they still had no business saying that there was no risk. Now, I've said this time and time again. If a man kills his wife and son in cold blood, of course he's a risk and danger to others. These are supposed to be the people who he has an intimate connection with, for crying out loud. Now, if he treats them like that, he's capable of anything. I think the public well know that. People are much better educated about crime and the psychology aspect. And of course, podcasts like Crime Analyst are about educating people. And I run masterclasses on risk assessment and exactly this. So wake up, law enforcement and criminal justice professionals. You have to raise your game. Of course he's dangerous. And if he can control people by what he says and threats that he makes and his power and control, his coercive control... He's even more dangerous. I'll say it again, and I really want to underline this point. Coercive control significantly correlates with femicide, familicide, and suicide. I literally say this on repeat every day, and it seems to me like SLED and so many other law enforcement departments and agencies and the media need to listen and ensure they're trained by an expert like myself. Sled put out information that Alec Murdoch had been cooperating fully with the police and that he had an alibi for where he was during the time of the murders. Now, as I said before, that turned out to be visiting his unwell mother Libby. I'm going to get into Murdoch's timeline specifically for that day and night and this so called alibi because the timings don't add up. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out-of-the-door with a messy bun and mascara vibe? Or are you quaff to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between, like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were Force Eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new Sheer Strength Lip Plumping Peptide Gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller-looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra-hydrating, and there are 10 shades to choose from, which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women, and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 20% off your first order. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey, chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com/crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, f a c t o r, factormeals.com/crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. You heard some of Shelley Smith, Libby Murdoch's carer's, testimony in Part 6. She had worked for the family since October 2019 and cared for Libby at night. She had a second job in the day working at Hampton School District. Shelley testified that she saw Alec Murdoch between 8.30 and 9.30pm for 20 minutes and that he lay on the bed whilst Libby was asleep and that it was unusual to see Murdoch there at night So that answers the question that I posed previously. He didn't usually go there at night. Days later, after Randolph died, Murdoch went round there again. Shelley was there. Shelley felt unnerved by this conversation and confided in her brother who was a law enforcement officer. That takes guts to do, and then speak out about it publicly and to testify, particularly as she really liked her job and was loyal to the family, which was why she cried throughout her testimony. She felt conflicted, but she knew all of this was off and she trusted her instinct and knew that she had to do the right thing and speak up. And that takes real courage, given the power and influence of the Murdoch clan. For me, it's interesting. Time matters a lot to Murdoch here. Yet in the police interviews, time is the one thing Murdoch avoids. It's obvious when I point it outright And another question for me is, why did he choose to go to his mother's house? We know from Shelley's testimony that it was unusual for him to visit at night. Shelley said Murdoch was fidgety and that his mother Libby didn't even know he was there. He lay on the bed looking at his phone, which sounds awfully like, to me, he was marking time. And let's not forget, he was supposed to be seeing his father. So why the change of plan? There had to be a reason and it sounded to me like Sled didn't consider an alternative reason for Murdoch going to his mother's house, Mida late that evening. Or it being treated like another related crime scene that should be searched. Special Agent David Owen later testified in court that they didn't search the property where Murdoch's mother lived for weapons, bloody clothes or anything else for three months. Three whole months Well, they would have had to have had probable cause, and remember, Murdoch was not treated as a suspect, regardless of what his lawyers would later say. Also, I doubt that any judge would have signed off a warrant to search Randolph Murdoch's house without significant direct physical evidence that night or in the coming weeks. Now, I suspect that that was something Murdoch had already thought about, which was most likely the reason that he went there in the first place. And that's not all. And this really blew my mind. I mentioned that the 911 call was released due to an FOIA, but SLED also released an 18-page document drop which included the actual crime reports for the double homicides of Maggie and Paul. And I'm going to read to you exactly what was written on the press release. So the first line was, For immediate release, June 21, 2021, and then the contact details of Tommy Crosby at SLED. And I'm not going to read those out. The subject title was SLED Update in the Ongoing Murdoch Double Murder Investigation. And then it read, The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division is committed to a thorough, fair, and impartial investigation into the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch. We understand the interest this case has drawn and urge the public to withhold judgment until our investigation is complete. We have received and are currently processing a significant number of FOIA requests for documents related to this case. In the interest of transparency, SLED is releasing redacted copies of the supplemental incident reports recently received from the Colleton County Sheriff's Office. We will continue to evaluate the records in this case, and we will release additional information when possible. And then there's a quote from the Chief of SLED, and it was this. As Chief of SLED, I urge the public to be patient and let the investigation take its course. This case is complex and we will not rush this or any investigation. Investigative decisions we make throughout this case must withstand the scrutiny of the criminal justice process. SLED agents continue to interview possible witnesses, collect and process potential evidence and investigate every lead with the same diligence we devote to every case. Sled agents are working tirelessly with our partners to build a case against any person responsible for the murders of Paul and Maggie Murdoch to ensure that justice is served. End quote, said Sled Chief Mark Keel. And the last two lines if you have any information related to this case, please call Sled's 24 hour dedicated tip line at 803 896 2605. And the very last line, redacted copies of the supplemental incident reports attached. I was so surprised and shocked to see this, and I can't state enough just how unusual this was. I mean, this was an ongoing and live investigation. There was no duty to share the crime report logs. They redacted eight pages, which were about the crime scene... And yes, a number of newspapers filed FOIA requests, FOIA requests. And yes, of course, everyone wants access to the case file. But when it's a live investigation, we, the public, we're not entitled to it. So why would SLED release it? They say it was in the interest of transparency, but it is just so bizarre. And the words from the chief, well, they sound great, but they were just that. They were words. Remember, despite the large and complex crime scene, they release Mazelle back to the family on the morning after the murders. And that came from John Marvin, Alec Murdoch's brother. Now this flies in the face of the quote from the Sled police chief in the press statement. And like I said before, it makes absolutely no sense to release the crime scene the next morning, particularly as the murder weapons were still missing. More on that soon. Right now, I want to switch gears and turn my attention to the August the 11th interview of Alec Murdoch by SLED. This is where it gets interesting. Three interviews later, and the psychological heat is finally turned up. The last two minutes of this interview were actually an interrogation of Murdoch by SLED. But I have to say, it's a real low-pressure interrogation. In fact, you couldn't get more low-pressure unless you were, I guess, sat in a car or something like that. Several things are clear to me from this interview, and it was after I watched this interview that I had little doubt that Murdoch killed Maggie and Paul. And I'm going to share with you how and why I came to that conclusion. Okay, first I want to give you the background context to the interview, because that paints a picture. Late in July 2021, Murdoch contacted SLED because he wanted his car back as it had his golf clubs in it, which he wanted. Murdoch did say that he had questions about the investigation that he wanted to ask, and Special Agent David Owens said he wanted to ask Murdoch some more questions too. Murdoch said that he was going on a vacation, as you do after your wife and son are brutally murdered, so he said that they should schedule something for when he got back. Now, as soon as I heard that, I thought of Scott Peterson again. Remember, he was arrested on his way to allegedly play golf when his eight-month pregnant wife Lacey was missing. It always gives pause for thought. What is it with men whose wives and children are missing or murdered and they think, I know, I'll go and play golf or I'll go on holiday. I mean, seriously, what the hell? Even that paints the picture to me and it should do to you. I can tell you, having worked many cases, that is not normal behaviour. On August the 3rd, Murdoch returned and called special agent David Owen to set up the interview. But Murdoch cancelled the appointment that they set up and so they rescheduled for a new date of August the 11th. This interview did go ahead at SLED's regional office in Waterborough and Special Agent David Owen once again took the lead and Senior Special Agent Jeff Croft was present. This time Murdoch arrived with a different lawyer to the last two interviews. Longtime friend Corey Fleming was by his side. And that's the same Corey Fleming who pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit wire fraud in federal court on May the 25th and faces up to five years in prison and a $250,000 fine. And it's the same Corey Fleming who admitted to helping Murdoch steal $4 million meant for Gloria's family. And the same Corey Fleming who was suspended from practising law not long after this interview. It's also worth pointing out that Corey Fleming was the third lawyer to accompany Murdoch to an interview with police, and this may well have been an intentional tactic used by Murdoch to ensure that no one had the full picture. Now, in this interview, Murdoch's longtime friend and lawyer, Corey Fleming, was the only one who attempted to set ground rules of the interview by trying to ascertain if it was an update meeting where they would be receiving information or whether it was an interview or an interrogation. Fleming did disclose that he was a friend and lawyer... ...and that he wanted to understand the process and ensure Murdoch was happy. And in fairness, that's exactly what a lawyer should do. SLED's David Owen responded... ...explaining that he was asking questions to further the investigation... ...and that they had to start with the closest person to the deceased... ...and who had found them, and that was Murdoch. And he was unable to get Murdoch out of the investigation... ...unless he answered the questions. Fleming said that he thought that that was reasonable... He just wanted to ensure that Murdoch was happy. And Murdoch said, I'll do anything to help. Before I jump into the end of the interview, I should also tell you that Murdoch was confronted by Special Agent David Owen a number of times throughout this interview. And like I said, it really was a low-pressure interview. He wanted to ensure that Murdoch would engage and continue talking to them. And so that's the reason why it was so low-pressure. Now, firstly, he asked Murdoch to go back through the timeline of June 7th. At this point, Murdoch started crying again, having been laughing and joking just seconds previously. And I say crying, he was making a lot of noise. And so Special Agent David Owen left the room to get a box of tissues. That's kind of an odd thing to do because they know that he makes a lot of noise and rubs his eyes and everything in each interview that's happened so far. So it's perplexing to me as to why they didn't have a box of tissues and everything else on the table so that they were prepared for that. But anyway, that's what happened. Now, Murdoch proceeds to go back through the day. He said that he was at work and that effectively nothing noteworthy happened to the point that he would have to check and see what he was doing. But he did say that he was doing things regarding the boat crash because he was a defendant, but really nothing noteworthy happened. And I'm going to come back to that because that's a bigger mission. He said that he hung out with Paul again and that Paul had swelling feet, he was resistant to seeing a doctor, and all of that shizzle was repeated again. Special Agent Owen heard what he had to say and once again tried to pin Murdoch down on timings. And once again, Murdoch avoids any specifics... And this is what he said about Maggie going to Moselle that night. Take a listen to this.
4: What time did Maggie get back home that night? Later.
2: Um, I'd say probably, the best I can tell, a couple hours after um, after us, after we got there
4: when y'all returned, when you and Paul returned back
2: to the house, was Maggie there? I can't remember if Maggie came by the, the um, shed when Paul and I were up there, or if we met her at the house. But, you know, <clears throat> it's not unusual for her, if we're messing around, for her to swing through up there. the mm-hmm. Maggie was supposed to be coming, I've found out she was worried about me, and me. worried about my dad. And so she came home.
3: Notice how Murdoch started to cry again at the point he said Maggie wasn't supposed to be coming home that night, that she was planning to stay at Adisto. And he said he wasn't sure she was coming home that night, but in this new retelling, he said Maggie went to Moselle because she was worried about him, about Murdoch, because of his dad's failing health. Now, we know from Blanca and Marion that Murdoch specifically asked Maggie to go to Moselle. Take a listen to this. But
2: Maggie was supposed to be coming home. I've since found out she was worried about me and me worried about my dad until so she came home.
4: Where, she, where was she going to stay? Then?
2: At Edisto. We were having work done down there. And it wasn't 100%, but it's pretty well she was going to stay at Edisto. So it
4: kind of surprised you that she came there?
2: That oh, didn't totally surprise me. She'd let me know earlier that she was coming home, but then I found out later why she came home.
4: She was concerned for you. What time did y'all sit down and eat dinner?
2: Not too long after that. Blanc had made dinner. <clears throat> and so the three of us ate dinner together.
4: What was the conversation around the dinner table? No.
2: Regular stuff. I mean, I can't tell you exactly, but...
3: The subtext to what Murdoch wants to convey is that we loved each other very much and she loved me so much, i.e. nothing to see here in terms of any relationship problems. He lied. That's a red flag. Finally, we hear Murdoch pressed on where she was staying and he then said a disto. He said that they were having some work done, but that's not what he said before. Special Agent David Owen tried to pin him down on time again and the conversation at dinner and Murdoch avoided any time references, again. Now, for me, he said that he couldn't remember the last conversation that he had with them, which is odd. That normally stands out to someone, and they replay it over and over and over again in their mind when their loved one is murdered. Murdoch again said that he wasn't sure when Maggie and Paul went to the kennels, and that he laid down on the couch and that he dozed off. Now, for me, it's an odd time to take a nap too, as it's late in the day, but that's what he said. And then Special Agent David Owen brought up the Snapchat video posted by Paul taken a few hours before the killings, showing Murdoch wearing different clothes than the shorts and T-shirt he had on when the police arrived after the 911 call. Take a listen to this.
4: There is a video on Paul's phone of um, you and him on the farm that night. And you were in Cacupac- tree.
2: I don't remember playing with a tree. Yeah.
4: I guess there was a tree sapling or something that was falling over or bending over and you were trying to get it to stand back, stand up. Uh, But I mean, the the question in that is, when I met you that night, you were in shorts and a t-shirt. At what point in that evening did you
2: change clothes? I'm not sure. you know, it would have been before dinner right? or after dinner. No, it would have been. Oh, what time of day was that? I would have thought I'd already
3: changed. Now it's interesting to me that he doesn't deny that he was there at the kennels. He's been caught in a lie, but instead he said he didn't remember playing with the tree. Special Agent David Owen then asked Murdoch, "What point in that evening did you change clothes?" There was a long pause. Murdoch's caught off guard here. He didn't know about the video and he said, I'm not sure. You know, it would have been... And then he telled off. And Special Agent David Owen said, before dinner or after dinner, trying to jog his memory. No, it would have been, Murdoch said, playing for time. And then he recalibrated and asked, what time of day was that? So here he's fishing for information, answering the question with a question. That's an indicator of deception. Special Agent Owen replied, "It looked like dusk." Take a listen to this and his answer.
4: It, it looks to be about dusk.
2: So that would have been 7th or 8 o'clock. I guess I changed when I got back to the house.
4: Earlier when earlier when we spoke. <clears throat> And you talked about making up from your nap and going to check on your mother. And you tried to call Maggie and you tried to call Paul. And then you sent or sent Maggie a text that you were going to check on your mother. You also told me that Maggie didn't normally go with you to check on your mother, but that she might might ride that night. Did you go by and check on
2: her? Go by and check on my mom.
4: Maggie, before you left to go, no, I didn't. With her not responding to you um, and thinking that she might ride with you, why didn't you?
2: I I don't, I don't uh, remember having plans that Maggie was gonna ride with me, um, but maybe she had told me that she was that night. I, I don't. I don't recall that I don't remember that specifically but um, I mean, it wasn't she didn't normally go with me I mean it's not like we had plans that she was gonna ride with me that she was going um,
3: Now Murdoch has a sense of what law enforcement know about the time frame, and so he said he guessed he changed when he got to the house. But he almost said it in a quizzical way. This is a really important detail he failed to mention at any point in his retelling of what he did and what they did amongst all the sea of extraneous information. Special Agent David Owen knows that, and he used silence as a tool here. And he also used it at other times throughout this interview. Special Agent David Owen then asked Murdoch plans for Maggie to go with him to his mother's house. Now, in my opinion, this is a good question to ask, seeing as it was apparently the reason why Maggie was there in the first place. However, before that, my follow-up question would have been about the clothes that he was wearing in that video with the tree. Murdoch was wearing khaki pants and a blue shirt and loafers, and it's somewhat strange to me that Special Agent David Owen didn't ask where those clothes were or request them.
5: Your happy price, price line.
3: You also heard from Blanca, the housekeeper, in a previous episode about Murdoch's clothes. She did the laundry for the Murdoch family. She knew everything about Alec Murdoch's clothes and other members of the Murdoch family, and it was her job to know. Blanca said she knew exactly what Murdoch was wearing on the morning of Monday the 7th of June. Take a listen to this.
2: Can you tell these folks Did there come a point that morning where he left the house? Alex Murdaugh, did he, did he leave and go to work? Or yes, wherever? he
3: did. Okay.
2: And can you tell them what he was wearing? Alex Murdaugh, best of your memory, when he left Moselle?
5: He had a pair of um, khaki pants, um, a green, greenish, I call it seafoam color, um, polo shirt, and he put a sports coat, a blue sports coat over it. And he put his shoes on which were usually right there next to um, a dresser that they had right there um, in the in the living room area. That's where his shoes used to go right there. So he just used to kind of slide his shoes on on his way out the door.
2: Do you remember what type of shoes he had on on June 7th, 2021 when he left?
5: His regular work shoes, the, um, the brown, there was a pair of brown leather shoes.
2: Was it a long sleeve shirt or a short sleeve shirt he left on?
5: The polo is a short sleeve shirt.
2: And um, staying out of everybody's view, do you remember anything specifically about that shirt?
5: Um, as he put his coat on, he he was putting his shoes on, and he was trying putting his coat on, um. And he was getting ready to walk out. He turned around, and I said, Alec, I said, um, hold on a minute. I said, your collar's sticking up. So I, I, um, he turned around and I fixed his collar inside his jacket because one collar was sticking up. Did so you the actually
2: help? I'm sorry. Did you help move his shirt.
5: Yeah, yes, I did.
3: Blanca said that morning Murdoch was wearing a seafoam green short sleeve polo, khaki pants, and brown leather shoes. She said she straightened Murdoch's collar that morning. Thank goodness for Blanca and her memory. In fact, Blonker reached out to Sled a few months after this August the 11th interview and told them about a strange conversation Murdoch had had with her about what he was wearing the day Maggie and Paul were murdered. Helpfully, she said he wasn't wearing that shirt in the Snapchat video. And as I said before, later that evening when speaking with the police, he was wearing shorts and a white t-shirt. So he had three wardrobe changes at least on June the 7th. Three changes that he failed to mention at any point to the police. Blanca testified that Murdoch nervously asked her if she remembered what he was wearing on June the 7th. Take a listen to this.
2: Yes, sir? Uh, did you have a conversation with Alex Murdoch about a shirt?
5: Yes, I did.
2: And let's go back. Where did this take place?
5: At the little house
2: all right what do you mean the little house
5: um after after paul and maggie were killed paul um um, alec was not staying at moselle my husband and i were and he would often stay in different places but all his clothes and um, toiletries and everything were placed in the house that sits um, between Mr. Johnny Parker and his brother Randy, there's a small two-bedroom house right there, and that's where all his belongings at the time went.
2: And where is that located?
5: In Hampton. Okay,
2: in Hampton. Okay. Who furnished this little house with clothes and toiletries and made sure his stuff was there?
5: I did. Okay.
2: <clears throat> and who was Alex Murdoch staying there with when he stayed there, if anybody?
5: He never stayed there. He would just go and get his clothing and eat whatever, you know, if he would have a snack or something. He wasn't really eating.
2: Well, during the month of August, do you remember him having a conversation with you about a shirt? Yes, sir. Did you find that to be unusual? Yes, sir. Okay. Tell them what the conversation was and why you found it unusual,
5: please. Um, he he walked in um to the little house and i was almost i was getting ready to leave and um he said b i need to talk to you and uh he said come here sit down so i went in the living room and i sat down and he was pacing back and forth in the in the living room and he said i got a bad feeling he said i got a bad feeling he said something's not right and then he said um he said, well, you know, um, there's a, um, a video, there was a video that was out. I hadn't seen a video. And he said, you remember the shirt I was wearing, that Vinnie Vine shirt? Those were, that's what he said to me. And uh, in my mind, I was saying, I don't remember Vinnie Vines shirt. It was the polo shirt. But I didn't mention, he said, well, you know what, I was wearing that shirt, he said, um, you know, in the, um, that day. And still, I, I was just, I didn't say anything, but I was kind of thrown back because I don't remember that. I don't remember him wearing that shirt that day.
3: Murdoch knows exactly what he's doing. And you're going to hear much more next week, including Murdoch asking about who was shot first Maggie or Paul, and Sled finally asking Murdoch if he killed Maggie and Paul. Take a listen to this.
4: I just okay. have uh, a few more questions.
3: Fine.
4: Did you kill Maggie?
3: But you'll have to wait until next week for his answer and my analysis. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst, and if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced, and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate, and music by Kilrood.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.